Today from the Global Lane, New World Order, post-COVID pandemic rule changes would give the WHO more control over your life. I believe that it will mean the establishment of a, a, a worldwide totalitarian biotech state. Expelled and arrested for defending biblical beliefs. A young Canadian speaks out against woke gender rules at his Catholic high school. God's natural order is under attack. The family unit in general is uh, being attacked from every angle and they're starting with the youth. SCOTUS hears two big tech cases that may have big consequences for social media. You go and hold platforms liable for having these recommendations. It means that there's more manual review, more censorship, less content getting to users. And the tiny Christian college that's taking on the feds over woke gender rules. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. The World Health Organization is moving forward to revise international health regulations in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some member states are expressing concern over provisions of the zero-draft WHO Convention Agreement. Critics say the proposed agreement would give the WHO authority over health care, trade, and other aspects of our lives. Well, joining us to explain more is Reggie Littlejohn. Ms. Littlejohn is president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers and co-chair of the Stop Vaccine Passport Task Force. Hi, Reggie. Before we discuss how this ties into U.S. law, what would approval of this zero draft agreement mean for people worldwide? Well... I believe that it will mean the establishment of a, a worldwide totalitarian biotech state. So these, these instruments, and, and by the way, you correctly uh, characterized the zero draft as an agreement. Uh, that's what they're calling it. They don't want to call it a treaty because they are deliberately trying to subvert the United States and the other countries' treaty processes. So if it's an agreement, all it takes is a signature. It does not take going through our Senate. So people say, oh, don't worry about it. It will never pass our Senate. Well, they are deliberately subverting our Senate uh, process. Signatories must recognize, quote, the central role of the WHO as a directing and coordinating authority on international health work. What do you believe that means? Well, it, it means that the WHO is able to call the shots if there's any health uh, emergency or potential health emergency anywhere in the world. And the language that says that they have to have the permission of the country has is stricken so that they can do it without the permission of the country. And it's not only about human health, they have something called One Health, which means that they can do it on behalf of human health, animal health, plant health, the environment. They can use any reason that they want to be able to come in and basically run, run the show in terms of uh, addressing that health issue. And, and I've read the Zero Draft proposal. It gives the WHO authority over the global supply chain, trade, commerce, uh, through establishment of the WHO Global Pandemic Supply Chain and Logistics Network. WHO Director, uh, Director General uh, Tedros would lead that effort early on in the pandemic. You remember Tedros praised President Xi Jinping for China's efforts to control the outbreak. So your thoughts on him and his potential control of the supply chain? Well, uh, 
Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus is very closely aligned with the Chinese Communist Party, and the Chinese Communist Party has absolutely outsized uh, influence at the World Health Organization, uh, which is why they were able to get away with all the lies that they did, which were just amplified by uh, Dr. Tedros. So this is, uh, is not a good alliance at all. And in terms of the supply chains, they, they are also wanting to take um, control over the intellectual property. Like if somebody in the United States or another country develops a great vaccine, they're, they're going to be forced to share that information, which is which I think is bad for the, the production of pharmaceuticals. I think that it's, the intellectual property rights are, rights are very important. Yes, I noticed that in the draft agreement. And, and here in the U.S., let's move forward. How is the Biden administration planning to use the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, to pre-approve whatever is approved by the WHO? This is something that just came to my attention on Friday from another from an international law expert that this uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which was rammed through at the very end of the last Congress, contains within it something called the International Pandemic Preparedness Act. And I think most people in Congress don't even know about this. Um, but that act contains a loophole in it, which he argues, and I agree, would makes it that whatever the World Health Organization passes is automatically made law in the United States, again, subverting our, our Senate. So this needs to be opposed. And in fact, I think that the entire World Health Organization attempt to take over the world, really, um, through vaccine passports. That's another thing that they want to do. Um, the World Health Organization, if these things are passed, will have the ability to mandate in the United States, how we handle a pandemic, including forced quarantines, forced mass mandates, forced vaccine mandates. Why, why should we allow Dr. Tedros, who failed so miserably in handling the Wuhan virus, uh, order us around about how we handle our own health? So I think that we should actually withdraw from the WHO, and we are calling for um, there's there's a, a, a uh, bill that is sponsored by Representative Biggs, um, and there is also a debate right now about raising the, de the debt ceiling. I think that anyone who believes in freedom in the U.S. Congress should condition raising the debt ceiling on U.S. withdrawal from the World Health Organization. Okay, Reggie Littlejohn, President of Women's Rights Without Frontiers and co-chair of the Stop Vaccine Passports Task Force. Thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Free speech and religious freedom under fire again in Canada. This time it's not pastors getting arrested over COVID-19 restrictions, but a 16-year-old high school student. Josh Alexander shared his thoughts about transgender ideology at St. Joseph's Catholic High School in Renfrew, Ontario. Officials suspended him from class for the rest of the school year, and when he showed up to class for the second semester, he was promptly arrested by two police officers. Well, here to share what happened is Josh Alexander. Josh, it's good to talk with you. So what happened in class? What did you say that got you in trouble? Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, so the, uh, the whole issue started uh, back in October, I suppose. Um, I had moved to the Catholic board. And uh, female students in the school informed me that uh, male students were using the female washrooms and they were concerned by this. Um, so I decided to talk about that. Um, I voiced my beliefs and uh, 
I expressed concern to the principal. Um, a female student also expressed concern to the principal, and we were both ignored. Uh, so at that point, I decided to organize a protest outside to uh, shed some uh, light on what was going on in, behind closed doors. And uh, they ended up suspending me indefinitely two days before the, uh, the actual protest. They gave me uh, an exclusion order. Um, this exclusion order was completely unlawful and discriminatory, and uh, so I decided to um, show up to school um, regardless of the exclusion order. And at that point, they hit me with a trespassing notice and another suspension. I waited all of that out until the end of the semester, lost four of my credits, and uh, by the beginning next uh, beginning of the next semester, um, with my lawyer, I informed them that I would return to school and continue to adhere to my religious beliefs. Not long into that time, I was uh, brought to the office, the principal blocked the exit, and uh, two police officers ended up uh, entering the building. And when they told me to leave, I explained to them the situation, how I was only in that situation because of my uh, beliefs and that I uh, exercised my fundamental freedoms and that I wasn't going to leave on a request. So uh, they ended up arresting me, and they charged me with trespassing. Were you hateful or disrespectful? What tone did you take when you said what you did? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't disrespectful at all. I, uh, I voiced my beliefs, my sincere beliefs, and uh, I never directed at a specific trans student that was doing anything. Um, I don't condone their behavior, but I also sympathize with them because they're a victim of our society um, and our education system and our the terrible parents that have encouraged and pushed that on their children. I was called a racist, a sexist, a bigot. Uh, by like Staff and students were involved in this stuff. And uh, yeah, I just continued to voice my beliefs and uh, I had ended up getting me arrested. There was conditions they wanted me to agree to in order to return to school. As a Christian, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to accept the falsehood. I'm not going to go along with the mainstream narrative that is completely contrary to God's natural order. So um I couldn't agree to those conditions, and uh, that's where I'm at at this point. Were you actually taken to the police station and booked, put in jail? Uh, no, they actually they charged me from the cruiser, and then they ended up uh, releasing me to my brother. Okay, and what was the reaction of your parents having their son arrested? <laughs> um, I doubt they're very happy about that. Uh, I mean, they, they recognized that uh, all I had done was express my beliefs, and... Uh, they weren't, they weren't too happy with the response from the Ontario Provincial Police or the school board. So they were supportive of their son expressing his faith in a Catholic school. Yes. Uh, imagine that. Uh, the principal declined to do an interview with a reporter from the National Post saying he couldn't comment about your case because of the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. That prevents him from talking about specific student cases. So what would you like to see happen now, Josh? Well, we're taking, uh, we're taking my school to the Human Rights Commission. Um, I would, uh, we also just had a uh, presentation um, at the school board meeting, and uh, we got to, uh, well, I had a representative from uh, parents as first educators. Uh, they got to give a presentation and explain where we were coming from a bit and offered some uh, resolutions. I don't know where that'll go, but uh, hopefully we can find a resolution and... Uh, move on and that uh, the, the safety of our female students would be taken a little more seriously and uh, the f our freedom of expression would be uh, 
defended rather than attacked by our education system. And, and the freedom of religion, your belief yeah. uh, in a Catholic Absolutely. school. So tell us about the petition you've got going. Yeah, we've got a uh, we've got a petition. You can find it at libertycoalitioncanada.com. And uh, that, that's probably we've got some plans that we uh, we haven't yet uh, released, but the, that'll come in handy. So if you, if you want to support what we're doing, just go ahead and sign that petition. Okay, and and finally, Josh, how important is your Christian faith to you? Tell us about your relationship with Christ. Yeah, it's it's incredibly important. Um, I probably wouldn't be here today uh, if it wasn't for it. And uh, I, I recognize that our uh, our freedom of religion is under attack. And uh, like I said earlier, God's natural order is under attack. The the uh, the family unit in general, is uh, being attacked from every angle, and they're starting with the youth. Um, you can see it not only in the education system, but even what they're doing with the Drake Queen Storytime Hours. I was actually arrested the day after um, at the school. I was arrested twice in two days um, because I was uh, quoting scripture um, outside of a uh, Drake Queen Storytime, and uh, the police arrested me for that and uh, charged me again. So it, I would say my, my faith plays a fairly large role in it. I'm not going to silence myself. Uh, we're told to go into the world and preach the gospel, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll see where that goes. And there are consequences in a fallen world when you do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Josh Alexander, all the best to you. Thank you for sharing your time and thoughts. God bless you. Thank you. God bless. Free speech on trial. The U.S. Supreme Court will soon decide two major big tech lawsuits that could determine what is and is not allowed for posting on social media. Last week, the court heard arguments in two cases, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Taamne. The Google case concerns protections allowed under a federal law known as Section 230. The Twitter case involves liability under the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And here to set us straight is Young Voices commentator James Chernowski. James, it's good to talk with you again. So first, explain the Gonzalez case and what it may mean for our viewers. Thanks for having me. Basically, when we're looking at Gonzalez versus Google, the question that's being presented is whether or not these platforms can be found liable for recommending content to users. So in this case, what had happened was that there was a terrorist attack that happened and that ISIS people were recruited uh, on YouTube videos had popped up in the recommendation section. So that's the question that's being presented is whether or not Google should be held liable for having that on their website. Well, is Section 230, the law that's quoted here, that limits big tech liability, is that a good law? Should it be revised? Because it seems to me if this goes against Google, uh, we may see more social media censorship and limits on speech. You're absolutely right. And I think that the problem here is that a wrong decision for Google is a wrong decision for the Internet writ large. The Internet is founded underneath a series of recommendations. So if we go and hold platforms liable for having these recommendations, it means that there's more manual review, more censorship, less content getting to users. What else uh, could happen as a result of this? I mean, it uh, broad ramifications. Yeah, I think that basically it makes it harder for you to discover new voices online. I think that if, if platforms are in a position where they can't go and recommend t content to users, it means that it's harder for us to go and discover networks like yours, to discover networks that have emerged in the Internet era. That's a bad impact for everybody. And tell us about the Twitter case, the argument that the radicalization of social media followers falls under terms of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. 
Yes, when we're looking at Tom Nuffy Twitter, the question is whether or not Twitter can be held culpable for materially and significantly contributing to an act of terrorism underneath the Anti-Terrorism Act. That's not a great question to be looking at insofar as that these, these platforms are not necessarily aware as to what's going on, and it wouldn't make sense to hold them liable for that. Well, what do you think is going to happen here? I mean, it seems that one seems like a reach to me about accusing Twitter of being a terrorist or aiding and abetting terrorism. Uh, what do you think is going to happen in these cases? The courts seem to be a little perplexed. Yeah, I think everybody's a little perplexed as what's going to happen here, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that everybody is confused as to what's going to happen because the online ecosystem is just so much more different than what we've traditionally been used to in an offline world. I think Justice Kavanaugh kind of set it up great in the Gonzalez v. Google case insofar as that he said that if we were to expose platforms to liability here, it would basically defeat the purpose of the law itself. So I think that that's something that we have to be cognizant of as we're looking forward, and we'll certainly keep everybody updated as we learn more. James, it seems this is all new ground here. Uh, which speech should be allowed, which shouldn't. Obviously, we don't want to see terrorist groups, hate groups, spreading their ideology, getting new converts, recruits. Uh, but then who decides what is a hate group? After all, I know the Southern Poverty Law Center calls the Family Research Council a hate group. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And it's one that we have to think very carefully about because one man's terrorist could be another man's freedom fighter. And I think that when we're looking at the war on terror, they only have to get it right one time, whereas these companies have to get it right 100% of the time. And these companies do, mind you, take a lot of proactive efforts in order to combat the rise of ideological radicalization on their platforms. Well, we've seen a big change uh, at Twitter under Elon Musk. I mean, there's a lot of speech that wasn't allowed before. We've seen that exposed. Uh, where do you think that's headed? I think that Elon Musk is doing the best he can to reshape the platform in his vision. I think that he's taken a lot of steps that are in the positive direction, and I think that we should be very excited about what the future holds for this company. Well, are we going to see, in your opinion, more censorship, less free speech? What's going to happen here across the, these platforms in the future? If these platforms are held liable underneath either of these cases, I think you'll see more censorship in general. I think Elon Musk is trying to pave the way for an ecosystem on the internet that will result in less censorship overall, but that's going to take time and dedication to make it work. So I think that we need to have patience with these platforms to adjust in changing circumstances, and we can only hope that the Supreme Court sees it that way too. Okay, we'll see how all this plays out, how it comes down with the court. We'll uh, be talking with you again when the court makes their decision. Young Voices commentator James Chernowski, thanks for setting us straight today. Thanks for having me. As the U.S. Supreme Court considers student loan debt forgiveness, a Christian college in Missouri is asking the court to hear its case about gender and dorm assignments. If you've ever taken a trip to Branson, Missouri, you've probably heard of College of the Ozarks. It's a small, prestigious Christian institution for higher education nestled in the Ozark Mountains in a place called Point Lookout. Less than 1,500 students are enrolled, but the college receives thousands of applications from those wanting to attend there. That's because the college offers free tuition. But unlike many students pushing for debt forgiveness, these students work for their tuition. You work uh, for 40 hours a week for 12 weeks, and that pays for your room and board for the fall and the spring semester. I've worked at the laundry, I've worked at the warehouse, I've worked at the Keter Center, I've worked in the construction department. I've done it intentionally to get a well-rounded 
work education. It's incredibly important, I think, to our country to graduate people who understand that being debt-free is a good thing and that debt is bad. And if you want something, you work for it. What a concept. Work hard and your debt is forgiven. This college emphasizes character and patriotism and, of course, Christian values. Back in 2021, President Biden signed an executive order barring gender discrimination. So the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, applied gender identity to the 1968 Fair Housing Act. As a result, the federal government is now trying to force the College of the Ozarks to open its bathrooms, showers, and dorm rooms to whatever gender someone thinks they are at the time. A biological male could room and shower with a female co-ed if he identifies as a female. CFO says that it is discrimination against them. They're a religious institution. It would force the college to abandon its biblical principles and its faithful commitment to God regarding sex and marriage. The Eighth Circuit Court ruled against the college, and that's why the school wants the Supreme Court to take up the case. Folks, this violates the U.S. Constitution and the right of freedom of religion. Let me remind you of Article 1 of the Bill of Rights, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That means the government cannot impose another faith, in this case, woke secular humanist religion, on the school. It also applies to President Biden and HUD. They cannot force a college to violate Christian principles, its beliefs about sex and gender, or anything else, because to do so would impose another belief system, in actuality, a government-conceived religion, on the institution. The Supreme Court must take up this case. Religious institutions must be excluded from this HUD rule. It is of utmost importance to American society to restate our guaranteed commitment to the First Amendment and religious freedom. If the government erodes the right of citizens to freely adopt and practice their own religious beliefs without religious freedom, the country is no longer free. And the democracy that the president and many politicians continually warn us is under threat will cease to exist. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.